When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. I would like to begin with a tone warning. This episode includes a frank discussion of literary representations of self-harm and suicide, and in particular, how writers such as Shakespeare and Milton often treated the subject in unserious or trivializing ways. In 1643, the writer Thomas Brown introduced the word suicide into the English language. Eventually, suicide as a concept would become a monolith in how we think about self-killing. Suicide has come to represent an individualizing, pathologizing way of looking at people who could contemplate ending their lives. But when Thomas Brown's new word was first used, it was entering a discursive space that was wider and more open to campy humor, slapstick, and misogynistic trolling. This is the argument of an exciting and nuanced book from today's guest, Drew Daniel. The title of the book is Joy of the Worm, Suicide and Pleasure in Early Modern English Literature, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Daniel is a professor of English at Johns Hopkins University and teaches early modern literature, critical theory, and aesthetics. Joy of the Worm is a fresh, elegantly written exploration of scenes of self-murder, or the contemplation of self-murder in Antony and Cleopatra, Paradise Lost, and Joseph Addison's Cato, A Tragedy. He is the author of the previous monograph, The Melancholy Assemblage from Fordham University Press, and the 33 and a third book on Throbbing Gristle's album, 20 Jazz Funk Greats, and he is one half of the electronic band Matmos. I'm excited to welcome Drew to the show. Delighted to be here. I wanted to start with a moving piece you published earlier this year on the literary theorist Leo Bersani. The piece appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education in March, around the time Bersani died, and it set out to consider how Bersani has contributed to our intellectual worlds. Can you talk a bit about Bersani and what his influence on you and your work has been? Yeah, um, it's it's been strong and it's shifted over time. Um, I think it started at, at, a, at a peak of personal pressure and relevance uh, because I first read Bersani when I was an undergraduate 
and at that time, I was in a relationship with someone who was HIV positive, but who was progressing towards having what at the time, you know, we called full blown AIDS. So reading um, Is the Rectum a Grave and experiencing the kind of um, power and force of the essay, its willingness to tell a lot of uncomfortable truths about the political uh, chessboard in which people with AIDS were being um, scapegoated and marginalized, you know, then occasioned a very complex intervention into sexuality studies and a reflection on um the utility of psychoanalytic thought for thinking about um, sexuality without ethical, um, redemptive attempts to glorify sexuality. And it was an angry, but also funny, um, inspiring piece of writing. I certainly didn't comprehend everything that was happening as an undergrad when I read it. I think I grasped it almost at the level of tone. That is, it modeled a kind of political rage that's rooted in a life-threatening emergency, but that doesn't lead you to try to claim the moral high ground. But instead, Bersani would insist on a kind of freedom to mock and to refuse dignity. And that was extremely powerful to me. It also made sense in an intuitive, maybe affective or emotional sense, because I came up, you know, through punk and hardcore scenes where like rage was the coin of the realm. And I was already really into John Waters and especially John Waters writing his book, Shock Value, you know, the kind of queer refusal of seriousness as a way to respond to a straight world that wishes you were dead is a very powerful thing that I had had, I think, clocked in Bersani. Now, you know, let's fast forward to the flowering of queer theory. I go to grad school. Bersani is an important kind of authority figure who then gets wrapped up in a certain sort of turf war around thinking gay male sexuality specifically versus a more expansive solidarity driven uh, model of queerness, you know, and Bersani kind of looks like a bad guy, depending on where you're standing there. But I always respected the intensity of his commitment to Freud, his intense um, passion for the possibility of psychoanalytic thought. And in a way, the kind of strange self-consuming uh form that that fidelity to Freud took, which is that that Freud, of all people, must never be spared uh, the cutting tools of his own analysis, that you bring Freud to bear on his own text in order to find its disavowals or its moments of, of fracture. And I love that about Bersani's writing. You know, I think when he died, um, it came as part of a kind of cascade of losses for queer theory. Jose Munoz, Lauren Berlant. Um, it's awful. Um, I, and, you know, so I wrote about Bersani as a way of reckoning with what what the field lost with his death, but also just, I think, as a way of thanking him. I want to pivot to this new book, Joy of the Worm. The book makes this distinction between self-killing and suicide. At one point, you write, by wide quote, by widening the gap between suicide and self-killing within this book, I hope to dislodge its hold upon the subject. I want to prevent suicides. I do not always want to prevent self-killing. End quote. Can you expand on that? What is the central argument of the book? How does the early modern literary archive provide or fail to provide a useful set of resources for mobilizing that intervention? 
thanks for that. It's a lot uh, to talk about. I, I think I'll, I'll divide into three parts in the same way that your question is divided into three parts. So let's start with that distinction. Um, quite simply, I think there are non-pathological reasons that someone might want to end their life. And so I use self-killing when I'm discussing such cases. That's because the word suicide tends to be assessed as something that by definition ought to be prevented. Now, Stoic thought insisted centuries ago on the dignity of rationally determining the moment of one's exit from the world. So it's not a new idea. What has changed, I think, is the gradual construction of a scaffolding of prevention protocols that make it harder to imagine, talk about, or respond to a substantial number of cases that I think merit the term self-killing. Euthanasia is one, but we can also talk about political actions in which people consciously and rationally decide to end their own lives. Um, And so self-killing can help us to avoid uh, the language or the rhetoric of pathologization, right? So if a climate change activist kills themselves in front of the Supreme Court, are they doing that because they're depressed? Are they mentally ill? No, they're making a politically conscious decision. So the self-killing versus suicide distinction, I think, can help us avoid essentializing an action. And that's a key idea for me, that actions don't have essences. We can define an action, but that doesn't mean that a word like suicide has a necessary essence. Now, that's not the main point of my book. The main point of my book is not a distinction between self-killing and suicide. Um, The central argument of my book is sort of adjacent to that distinction, but it's a little bit more um, historically specific. Um, as you know. And the core claim is this. Early modern literature abounds with representations of self-killing that imagine self-harm, self-killing, and voluntary death as pleasurable, ecstatic, positive, or somehow productive of what I'm calling, you know, in a loosely Spinozist manner, positive affects, joy, humor, release, ecstasy. These literary representations are abundant. That is, the when I started to notice this, it was first in Shakespeare. But after noticing it in Antony and Cleopatra, I started to see it in more and more plays and poems and texts. Um, But this idea that early modern literature can show voluntary death in ways that generate positive emotions didn't map easily onto what was the received prevalent historical narrative, which is about a religious consensus during the early modern period that the act is sinful and therefore abhorrent, that its probable cause is satanic temptation, Uh, and that its baseline generic template is tragedy. So my book is trying to make a case for the ecstatic, pleasurable, and comedic exceptions to that narrative. Um, And I'm not saying that that narrative doesn't have a basis. It has a basis in plenty of examples. I'm just saying that there's more to the issue, and that if we attend to the literature, we need to pluralize and expand our sense of how voluntary death gets represented Um, And that's why the self-killing versus suicide distinction is useful over and above the the mere historical fact that the word suicide is coined, you know, by Brown in 1643. And I have a kind of broad political hope. I know it's sort of embarrassing, even tacky to confess to hope such a like cursed political moment right now. Um, But. This is a hope of mine. I would say that being able to be honest about the range of emotional stances that art invites us to take towards an action is meant to indicate a similar potential for honesty, even unto the present moment. Um, Now, that's not the same thing as being pro-suicide, right? I'm not for suicide. Obviously, if someone is in crisis and needs support, I want them to get that support. 
But not every situation of self-killing is an example of someone who is in the grip of mental illness. Um, I think we know this as a culture at some level already. Um, but I think art has a specifically powerful kind of exemplarity and endurance. And the fact is that early modern literature abounds with some of the most powerfully enduring representations of people deciding to take their own life. Um, Shakespearean tragedy is the obvious go-to case here. So to build this account around the strongest examples, I think is part of my hope to build some kind of bridge from the past to the present. Um, I'm trying to adjust an intellectual history in order to spark an ethical conversation that I think can carry over into the present and that I think is kind of charged by the present moment. Um, we live in a moment in which there's an epidemic of suicide and there's understandable prevention-based protocols around how we talk about that fact. But those protocols are not exhaustive. And in fact, they prevent us from looking at the total picture and they prevent us, I think, even from being honest about the array of different emotional relations to this action that we feel in the present. So sorry, long answer, but you know, you did ask three questions. <laughs> no, that, that was great. Um, it seems to me that this book is also deeply invested and, and sensitive to the dynamic between performers and audience, the effects produced on a stage which, which produce responses in audiences, and the tactics audiences take to speak back to performers. There's several memorable anecdotes in the book, such as a story a friend told you about an audience member who threatened to commit suicide at a live performance. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the contact zone between audiences and performers? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, in addition to being a teacher, I'm a musician. And so that's something I experience firsthand all the time. You know, audiences have agency. They can embrace you or resist you. They can push back. They can succumb. You know, they can kind of melt or they can freeze up. And it's also subject to interpretation and argument. You know, I can walk off stage and think that people hated something and then you meet someone at the bar later and they tell you that they loved it. I think we already know this as teachers too. You can sense the kind of hardening of resistance in a classroom or a flow into excitement when the tempo picks up. Um, and Shakespeare, I think, is pretty fascinating as a case study because he gives us um, a, a very juicy example of this uh, in that kind of referendum about what is our ethical relationship as an audience to performers. I'm talking about the bad acting at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Um, when we see Pyramus and Thisbe kill themselves, but the actors are doing such a bad job that the audience finds this kind of camp joy in the midst of witnessing uh, what is supposed to be tragic, what is supposed to be taken seriously. Um, this reminds me of a story that's not in my book, but that I think is illustrative of the same dynamic. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents took me to Shakespeare in the Park in Louisville, Kentucky in the 80s. And we were seeing Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, most of the audience were these sort of middle class folks that know how they're supposed to comport themselves when they're around, you know, so-called high culture. But on the very front row, there was this large and kind of uproarious family that sounded kind of Appalachian or, or maybe just, you know, country people. 
And they kept laughing and talking throughout the play. And you could feel this kind of um, hostility from the rest of the audience. Like the rest of the audience hated these people in the front row. But then it took a wild turn, which is that in the scene in which, you know, Juliet wakes up and sees Romeo's dead body and then stabs herself instead of behaving as an audience is, you know, quote unquote, supposed to do this front row just died laughing. They thought Juliet's death was hilarious and just rolled with laughter. And it was a really tense, uncomfortable moment because you could just feel middle-class hatred like radiating from everyone else in the audience. Everyone else in the audience absolutely hated these people in the front row and was appalled at the rudeness of their refusal to grant tragic seriousness to, you know, Juliet's death. Like instead of buying into it, they backed out of it completely. Now that moment really affected me as a child because it showed me a couple things. Like one thing was that audiences are not singular. Like audiences are a, a plural space of like forces jostling against each other. And it's absolutely a classed space, right? Like good behavior in the theater is middle-class compliance with, with a, a kind of heritage industry, bardolatrous worship of Shakespeare. It's like church. Um, so it was a really wild moment on that level, as well as in an addition, kind of, I think being a kind of origin myth for, for joy of the worm, because it was a moment of people laughing at suicide and laughing at suicide as a way to, refuse the claim upon us that this act must generate respect and can only generate respect or must generate pathos and can only generate pathos. And I think Shakespeare already knew that. And I think that's why so soon after he wrote Romeo and Juliet, he wrote Midsummer Night's Dream. And he gave us a funny scene in which the attempt to stage tragedy fails. You know, so I don't think I'm just like imposing my Kentucky childhood onto Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare already had thought this through. Like Shakespeare had already thought about the camp potential of suicide. And he would never have written Pyramus and Thisbe if that wasn't true. Can you talk a little bit more about that scene of failed suicide as comic? Oh, in Midsummer Night's Dream. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is that it's... It's at once a camp moment, right? The the bottom and company players are failing to do justice to a classical story uh, from Ovid that would have been something, you know, Shakespeare had studied as a child in grammar school and would have been familiar with as well through the Golding translation, um, which he's constantly pilfering and borrowing from across his work. So it's a case of... Shakespeare as a middle class uh, snob himself who knows the Latin text, giving us some bumpkins that are mangling classical literature and encouraging a kind of mockery of their class based inadequacy. But at the same time, it's as if in the middle of writing that scene, I think Shakespeare has second thoughts about the limits of camp. And I think that's why Hippolytus says, beshrew my heart, but I pity the man. That is, other people are laughing at these actors trying to stage the suicides of Pyramus and Thisbe. And then Hippolyta actually feels pity anyway. And it's not clear when she says, beshrew my heart, but I pity the man. It's not clear if she means pity for the character or pity for the actor who's being laughed at. 
Um, in either case, we've got the word pity, like right on the page in the play text, we have the core, you know, mechanism of Aristotelian catharsis, right? The generation of pity and sorrow as a, and, and this sort of like purgation seems to be happening for Hippolyta. So that's what I think is really amazing about that moment in Midsummer Night's Dream is that on the one hand, you absolutely have this camp moment, a camp moment of mockery of the supposed seriousness of suicide in which we are able to laugh at people killing themselves. It's bottlenecked through what looks like a kind of classist idea that some people just shouldn't touch classical literature because they aren't up to the, you know, they aren't up to the task. And that's why we have all these gags about, you know, misunderstanding Ninus's tomb as Ninny's tomb, right? Um, and yet, because it's Shakespeare, it's got this plurality of possible relations. And so in addition to the camp moment, we also have like a strange um, alternate way of feeling within the scene that I think is Hippolytus' pity. So as usual, kind of Shakespeare's got a scene of mixed emotions and a kind of turbulent weather system of genre in which the failure of tragedy to achieve seriousness generates comedy, but then that comedy has a funny kind of sour aftertaste that isn't entirely satisfying. Um, you know, we have these really loose words like tragic comedy um, that we wield in order to, to try to address what it feels like to pass from from one emotion to another to another. And Shakespeare just does it so swiftly in a single scene. Um, I don't know. I, th I think it's, um, you know, it's easy to take that scene and shrink it down to a question of, of capacity, right? And say that it's not that different to the pleasure we take in watching, you know, X Factor or, or some kind of like, competitive show where judges sit and decide if someone's singing voice is fantastic or a little pitchy. And it's the same with the aristocrats assessing whether bottom and co can really act or not. Uh, but I think there's more to it than that. Um, I think there's a real working through of camp, um, and camps limits that happens in Midsummer Night's Dream in that moment. I'm sad that it didn't make it into the book, but I'm glad I'm getting to rant about it now for you. Thank you for that. I think that really gives um, the sort of flavor of the book and, and your style of reading. Um, one of the things I'm going to take away from this book, one of the ideas that I think is really exportable and I feel is going to be useful for myself is the idea of good enough presentism. For a long time, presentism, that is the practice of imposing our own views onto old materials, was considered a major faux pas for literary critics. What is good enough presentism? Can you parse this phrase you have in the book, um, which is, quote, what can RIP trolling teach us about Hamlet? Thanks for that. So, so good enough presentism is a riff on uh, the British uh, therapist D.W. Winnicott's uh, good enough mother from his book, Playing and Reality. And the good enough mother is a mother who helps her child by giving them controlled bursts of disappointment so that they can surrender the absolute idealization of a good mother, i.e. someone who is always there for them. So good enough is a humane way to surrender a certain kind of ideal. 
in this case, the ideal of a historicism that would presume to be a time machine, right? The ideal uh, in early modern studies of a reading of Shakespeare that would capture what Shakespeare meant and not smuggle in any relation to the present moment in which we're reading. So the problem with presentism as far as it's been framed in the media and in criticism can be summarized in just one word, distortion. The idea is that if we think that a sonnet is about climate change, we're forcing something from the past to be another mirror for our present concerns. So there's a kind of accusation of a narcissistic distortion behind the idea that presentism is bad. Uh, I think a good presentist reading reacquaints us with a possible meaning contained in the past that is pressurized by the present moment of reading, but is not hostage to it. Let me give you an example from another critic. So this isn't all just me, me, me. Laurie Shannon reads the phrase nature's changing course in Shakespeare's Sonnet 18 as a case in point of Shakespeare imagining that nature itself can change. And so if we're allowed to have a controlled burst of presentism via Laurie Shannon, we might hear something conditional in the phrase, so long as men can breathe. That phrase, so long as men can breathe, might be helpful in flagging a current climate emergency. But we don't have to pretend that Shakespeare, when he wrote Sonnet 18, meant to say something about climate change. We can say, Shakespeare, in the moment of writing Sonnet 18, already imagined that nature itself might change its course. And now that we live in a moment in which climate science is is showing us that that is possible, we in the present read Sonnet 18 from a different place. And because we read it from a different place, different images and emphasis surface for us as readers. And that is part of how we relate to the poem. It's not the false claim that Shakespeare all along predicted climate change or meant to express something about climate change when he wrote the poem. I think I do something analogous in my chapter on RIP trolling, but I have to explain what RIP trolling is. So RIP trolling is a cruel form of online mockery and harassment in which trolls go to the message boards on Facebook and other social media platforms where people are grieving a death by suicide and conduct what's called a raid. That is, they show up and they post abuse and mockery, and they especially focus on the kind of cliched sentiments that some, you know, public expressions of grief tend to rely upon. That is, very often people who are, you know, in the immediate blast wave of grief and loss aren't at their most articulate, aren't necessarily spelling words correctly, are sometimes reaching for consolatory expressions that can feel cliche. And RIP trolling is a kind of particularly harsh and cruel feeling of uh, joy in making fun of people who are grieving. And it's discussed in some of the critical literature about trolling um, books like this is why we can't have nice things or kill all normies are, you know, two recent examples of books that attempt to address the particular forms of sociality that online forums um, have made possible. Now, I use this dynamic of RIP trolling to reassess the kind of sadistic pleasure that Hamlet and Timon take in mocking other people on the subject of suicide. Hamlet principally at Ophelia's funeral, uh, in the case of Timon, the hanging tree joke that he makes with the senators. Uh, 
By asking what can RIP trolling teach us about Hamlet, I'm using a present activity, RIP trolling, as a way to focalize our reading of something in Shakespeare without pretending that Shakespeare was all along trying to say something about incels or Facebook or trolls. I hear a resonance between two historically distinct moments. I'm not pretending that they're the same moment. I'm saying that the later event, our present, in which online trolling is a popular example of the fact that people can take sadistic pleasure in deflating somebody else's investment in the seriousness of death and loss uh, as a way to think about earlier artworks in which characters like Hamlet and Timon seem to draw a similar not identical, but similar kind of pleasure in violating the occasion of a funeral or the occasion of a political emergency. So trolling is a kind of cruel joy in inflicting suffering that's notably playful, and it relies upon and exploits codes of decorum. It sort of reinforces them through the way that it trashes them. And I think that trolling can tell us something about scenes in Shakespeare that we might already know. It can light up aspects of those scenes in new ways. That's what I'm trying to advocate for with good enough presentism. Now, the flip side of this is a problem that I see um, in, you know, cropping up constantly as a result of our familiarity with Shakespeare and as a result of the cultural capital that Shakespeare has, which is that whenever there is a new social movement, political crisis, um, important, you know, figure who is the object of a lot of attention, there's a desperate urge on the part of Shakespeare scholars to show that somehow Shakespeare anticipated this. Um, my example in the book is an, an op-ed whose title was what Shakespeare can teach us about black lives matter. Um, I'm not the only person to have pointed out all the bad bardolatrous presumptions behind the way that that headline was phrased. Um, I think it's revealing of a desire on the part of Shakespeare studies to turn Shakespeare into an endlessly relevant, endlessly um, predictive resource. And I want good enough presentism to flip the, the temporal relationality so that instead of pretending that Shakespeare has always arrived there first, we're being honest and upfront about where we stand when we look back at Shakespeare and we're letting what we know about the present into the scene in which we read the past. That's my goal. You know, if it's useful, great. It might be that, you know, um, this is wishful thinking. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
No, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I, I think that's an important intervention. Um, I, I also wanted to talk about the, the prose in this book. Um, Odd as it may seem, given the topic, Joy of the Worm is a pleasure to read. Can you read a passage from the book for us? Sure. So this is a passage that occurs in a chapter on Antony and Cleopatra. Um, it's the, the, the paragraph before my conclusion. Joy of the Worm is the comic delivery of tragedy, the serpentine folds in which genre is made to redouble upon itself as wave upon wave of transient lives crash before us. Inverting the sententiousness of memento mori and the cadences of finitude that would press us to always remember that in the midst of life we are in death, the joy of the worm implicit in the clown's suicidal slapstick is the reminder that in the midst of death we are in life. Crowns can always slip off. Until the moment that we finally die, we're encroached upon, jostled, and interrupted, and hailed, and challenged by others. We're surrounded by others who will outlive us, and our bodies become food for others, literal food for the worms, figurative food for the thoughts of those who stand and watch and remember. There's no guarantee that they will grant seriousness to our circumstances, and much to suggest that they will not. Suicidal slapstick might be thus distinguished from suicidal stand-up, which is what the gravediggers in Hamlet are engaged in, a glib stream of jokes about suicide as a topos, a dreadful crime and a sin, but also the object of derision and communal opprobrium, fantasy, mourning, and speculation. Suicidal slapstick is an insistence upon the fact of theatrical mediation as a reminder not of the pathos of the private self's incorrigible inaccessibility, the undiscovered country within, but of the underexplored country already around us, the comos of the rowdy, rude populace who stand and watch every spectacle and who might just be laughing as they do so. You know, some of the things that stand out to me in this passage is the alternation between sort of more ventilated passages. You know, the first sentence, it has the sort of long parallel um, comparison, and then it's followed by that short sentence, crowns can always slip off, that, that sort of um, crystallizes the point. Um you know, I love the the um, abundance of of choice and kind of parallel verbs, jostled and un, and interrupted and hailed and challenged. You know, that's really wonderful. Um, how do you develop a passage like that? What kinds of practices and tactics do you take to craft academic prose? Do you sit at the desk honing it until the prose is right? Do you rewrite from scratch? Oh, thank you for that. It's it's funny to lift up the hood on this paragraph because now I hear the way that my Kentucky story kind of pressurizes it, like the rude populace that laughs, like that foundational story is kind of hiding behind this paragraph. Um, yeah, I, I think you get a contact high from certain writers and I think spending a lot of time with Lily and Euphuism leads me to love parallel constructions, but then you want the punchiness too. You want the alternative of something short and direct that cuts through that. Um, the reality is I took eight years to write this book and it was really five years of writing and then about three years where every summer I would rent a cabin in the middle of Maine, like not the fancy seaside expensive part, the cheap Trumpy part, uh, and I would just revise you know, and I would sit there all day, every day for hours and nudge the sentences and take things away and put things back and rewrite things many, many times, you know, and I think as a materialist, I have to be honest about, you know, the, the classist privilege of that, right? Like I'm tenured and I'm not a parent. 
So that means if I want to just focus absolutely and entirely on the writing, I have the material comforts, the institutional supports, the supportive partner that lets that be a reality for me that I could take that long. Um, I do love sentences with three verbs in them. And I think if I was a little tougher on myself, I probably ought to go through and decide, you know, when does, when is that really called for? And when am I just a little over caffeinated? Um, now the counterpoint, I think of, of my abundant rambling and my long paratactic sentences is that this book was put under a very severe, but very useful editing pressure uh, from Nanda and Anahid Nersessian, who are the editors of the Thinking Literature series at Chicago. When I approached them with the book, uh, my book manuscript was 140,000 words. And they told me up front, we will not read this until you get this to 110. So I had to cut a massive amount out of my book. I had a whole time and chapter. I had a whole Hamlet chapter that had to get contracted into one chapter that brought the Hamlet and the time and material into relation, which meant I have to throw away a lot and I have to rethink a great deal. Um, so, you know, yeah, the answer is I had a lot of time, um, but I also had a lot of pressure to make sure that if it was in there, I was really committed to it and I really believed in it. Um, I mean, the other thing I would point out, and, you know, maybe this is obvious from something like clown crown, you know, is that I'm reading a lot of poetry and I think academics should read poetry, not because we should pretend that academic prose is poetry. You know, I'm not saying like it should have lots of purple passages or belletristic kind of splurges, but but just that poets have a, a way of asking a lot out of every phrase, right? The sort of economy that poetry demands is a good model for clarity of thought. You know, to me, it's a false choice between analysis and and image like poetry shows that the image is a way of analyzing. Um, I, I mean, you know, yeah. And that's not to say, like, I'm a poet, like I'm not a poet. I don't write poetry, but but I read a lot of poetry and, you know, reading a lot of poetry and especially poetry from lots of different eras, not just early modern poetry um, keeps my mind, you know, alert or I want it to, I don't know. It's hard to talk about without, you know, sounding like I'm, you know, smug or something. <laughs> um, no, no, I think no, not at all. Thing no. about, yeah, the, the other thing in that paragraph that comes to mind, having just read it out loud is that halfway through writing this book, um, my stepfather died and my mother had a heart attack and a stroke and I had to drop everything and, and take care of them for a year. And I was able to do that because my employer gave me, you know, leave and support to do that. So I was around people who are dying, um, but dying can take a really long time and you can't sustain an attitude of tragic grandeur and seriousness and the final conversation. If someone is going to die over months and months and you have to cook them three meals a day or, you know, also, just the reality of dying now is that it's mediated by all kinds of people who are paid to be there, but who are not watching their loved one die. It's a workplace. And so the mixed class space in which we die now is a, a space in which something supposedly intense and serious, death, um, is also being witnessed by people that don't have a big emotional dog in the race. And that wound up reminding me of the class-based mixture of early modern tragic 
texts in which aristocrats are dying and a bunch of servants are around and watching and they might hate these people or they might see all these people's flaws. So that kind of sense that genre is pressurized by class antagonism and class antagonism shows up as different ways of relating to who does or doesn't have access to seriousness. That's something that I think is true of the early modern texts, the dramatic texts that I care about, but I think it's also just true of life and it's true of the way we die now. And it's something that I was having to think about all the time while I was writing this book because, you know, I was dealing with, you know, someone in hospice care and scheduling with nurses and, you know, washing somebody's wounds. And it's just, it's just a part of the reality of, of, of how long it takes to die that you can't stay serious all day, every day. It's just not sustainable. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, given, given that this was so close to life, you know, and, and, um, was so integrated into your your day to day to day existence. Um, did you um, have reluctance to engage with this as a scholarly project? Were there times where you had to put it aside in order to? I think my yeah, I think my own relation to 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 suicide changed a lot over the eight years, um, and I think my own sense of when and where to be personal changed a lot too. You know, basically every book about suicide has some, some kind of anecdote in the preface where somebody confesses that a partner or a colleague or a child or a friend or, or a parent took their own life. So if you read lots of work in suicidology, you're constantly encountering this scene where someone wants to make an intellectual or historical argument, but the personal surfaces like why would you spend years of your life thinking about suicide? Well, because it matters to you. Um, because I was making an argument about our freedom within art to find pleasure in suicide or to laugh at scenes of suicide, um, I didn't really feel that it would be appropriate for me to sort of position my own personal relation to it as a topic. And so I mostly backed off from that. There's a few moments in the book where I mentioned that, you know, I had to help my stepfather get access to drugs to end his life. Um, he chose not to use them. He, in fact, died of natural causes. But that process of helping somebody prove to the state that they're dying of a terminal illness, that it's incurable and that they'll be dead within six months, but they're not depressed about it um, was hilarious. Like, how could that not be funny? The idea that you're dying, but you're not depressed but you do want to end your life. Um, the sort of jumping through the the hoops of suicidal bureaucracy, there was a comedic dimension to it, even though it was in the midst of something that was, you know, awful and 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 sad and unpleasant. Um, you know, I think I had to. I had a lot of anxiety writing this book. My fear was that I would be perceived as some kind of aggressive jerk or unsympathetic asshole who wants to make fun of people in crisis. Um, I don't want to do that. And I don't think of myself as doing that. Um, but I do want to make a space for the fact that I think a lot of artworks permit us to take all sorts of stances towards self-killing that are currently regarded as so harmful that they should never be said. Um, and yet our culture abounds with suicide humor. You know, it abounds with people joking all the time online about wanting to kill themselves 
uh, making jokes about their suicidal ideation, making memes about suicide. Like Generation Z cannot stop making suicide jokes, even though those of us in charge of educating Generation Z are constantly saying, now, now, you mustn't make those jokes. It's not okay to make those jokes. It's never okay to make those jokes. And yet we're teaching texts um, in which there are jokes about suicide. Hamlet is one of them. The gravediggers are making jokes about suicide. Like you cannot teach early modern literature and not um, thread that ethical needle um, of laughing at the thing you're not supposed to laugh about. Um, I wanted to say everything, um, but I couldn't. And I didn't position myself personally in relation to suicide. And that was a choice I made. I made it because I thought it afforded me the right to just make the argument based on the literary evidence. I didn't want to seem to be twisting somebody's arm of like, well, you have to care about my argument because look at personal situation X, Y, or Z. You know, I, I didn't feel, I felt like that would have been kind of cheap, but maybe it was cowardice, you know, in hindsight, maybe I just, you know, lacked courage. (laughs) Um, I, I did want to revisit. You mentioned you're reading poets. You've taken a lot of inspiration as a writer from um, c- creative work. Are there some writers you'd recommend? Um, academic writers, poets, nonfiction writers? Yeah. You know, um, a lot. I, I really was inspired by Aaron Kunin's book, Character as Form. It's a wildly original, weird weird book. It's a very original argument about literary character, um, but it's also supposed to be a model for a new kind of academic writing that's more informal, that's lacking, I think, some of the kind of posturing and fogeyism and kind of, you know, epic clouds of citation as, you know, elbow pads on the tweed jacket kind of, you know, clutter. Uh, So I think he's an inspiring thinker and an inspiring writer. Uh, to pick somebody outside of early modern studies, I think uh, Eugenie Brinkema's new book, Life Destroying Diagrams, is astonishingly bold, incredibly original. It's wild. Um, and it's wild and yet smart and motivated to describe artworks in ways that are compelling and to think about what we do when we read for form. Uh, so it, it, it intervenes into formalist debates, but it does so while talking about the final destination movies and the human centipede movie. Like it's an attempt to think about horror and disgust with a, a, an incredibly active um, archive. Uh, so I find Brinkema really inspiring, you know, uh, as far as, yeah. So Kunin and Brinkema are two examples of people who are doing it right now, who are doing it in a way that, that is new, that is not just sort of stalled out in, in rehearsing, you know, freestanding critical discourses that have had a lot of airtime. Um, and I think that's so exciting. So I love that. Um, another Cunin book to check out is the, is, is love three, which is a, I think it's a 400 page close reading of a single poem by George Herbert. It's absolutely wild. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I have real hopes for like what, what the humanities, as a space for active writing and thinking can be at its best, you know, and I don't bring up these examples to say like, and that's the best way to write, or that's the only way to write. Like, you know, everybody has to find what feels valid for them. Um, you know, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, in Paradise Lost, uh, Adam and Eve weigh the option of killing themselves in the post-lapsarian world. You use this to test and scrutinize the modern rubric for, for suicide prevention. And uh, in, in, this is an acronym, Is Path Warm? Can you walk us through the argument of that chapter? Yeah, that's a that's a weird chapter. Um, it was prompted by a student of mine who gave me a cartoon drawing in which she depicted herself ending her life. And I wanted to talk about suicide prevention and kind of inhabit its frameworks in order to assess their utility as a kind of format for literary criticism. So can Paradise Lost help us think about how it feels to survive? Is survival, is choosing to survive a duty? Is it a choice that we make? Is it an obligation? Is it a burden? Um, I mean, you might say, okay, that's very rigged since of course, intake interview diagnostics, which is what is path warm is right. It's, it's an acronym, uh, stands for ideation, substance abuse, purposelessness, anxiety, trapped, hopelessness, withdrawal, anger, recklessness, mood changes. So you're supposed to remember is path warm. And then when someone is showing up in crisis, you're supposed to use this list, this little kind of rinky dink alphabetical um, trinket uh, as a way to check how someone's doing. Um, And in the real world, there's a basic urgency to that, right? Is this person at risk of self-harm or not? Now, obviously that doesn't apply to how we encounter people in 400 year old poems, but I wrote a chapter kind of proceeding as if that difference didn't matter. Um, And so I used the organizing rubric of is path warm as a way to imitate my students' cartoon. So because the chapter grew out of a cartoon, which is divided into panels, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to respond with a kind of counter cartoon, like little subsidiary panels that use these lists or use the, the, the terms on this list as a way to assess the encounter with suicidal possibility that Eve proposes to Adam, right? In Milton's poem, Eve says, well, okay, we know that we're going to bring this thing into the world called death. We don't really know what death is, but what if we killed ourselves first and then we we could satisfy the idea that death is coming, but we could avoid passing it on to our children? Um, and I, I think the, the, the utility for me of this acronym is that instead of having to make one big argument, I got to make 10 sort of mini encounters with these terms. And those terms are variable in how relevant they are to Milton's thinking, right? Um, A concept like uh, anger is absolutely relevant. A concept like substance abuse feels, you know, maybe a little trite and maybe like a little bit of a stretch. Um, The entire movement of the chapter proceeds towards its last letter mood changes and mood changes is used by me as a as a way of ending the thought experiment of what paradise lost might have to say to suicide prevention discourse Um, because i end with a point that i think is not at all original to me it's something that um jennifer hecht makes in her book stay it's the same argument essentially in the moment in the grip of suicidal ideation, you might believe that there's no point in surviving, but you cheat the future version of yourself of the capacity to feel something different if you don't endure and allow your mood to change. So ultimately, the argument comes to rest in the idea that 
one thing we know about our own affective life is that emotions heat up and cool down. And if we can know that, then we can traverse suicidality and wind up somewhere else. And if we know that we can wind up somewhere else, then we owe it to the future versions of ourselves to allow us to reach that point on the other side of an emotion that we're feeling. Um, you know, along the way, I think I was exploring an ambivalence about suicide prevention discourse itself. On the one hand, as a teacher, I absolutely don't want my students to kill themselves. I want them to live. But I think suicide prevention discourse is a deeply um, conformist and, and politically naive discourse, right? It insists that all we have to do is save people and rescue them. But what world are we rescuing people into? When we say, no, you must live like, okay, but live how pay rent, how get health care from who, you know, over and over when someone's in crisis, we say, well, seek help. But that's just a dark joke in a world where most people can't afford a therapist, you know? So the idea of like, oh, well, it's important above all that you survive, like it, you know, that brackets so much of the conditions, which are political conditions uh, in which we are supposed to have a life, um, you know, and that's 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 not to say that therefore I I want to encourage people to abandon themselves to despair. I guess I'm just saying life is not enough, you know, and and that's that's where I'm not here simply to reduplicate or recirculate uh, suicide prevention discourse. I'm also here to suggest, you know. It's it's deep uh, political limitations. Yeah, I, th I think I agree. That's incredibly important. How I don't know how Miltonists will feel about this chapter. Uh, I'm I'm very curious to see. You know, uh, we'll see if the book gets reviewed and and you know if people choose to engage with it or not. Uh, I mean, I shared it with my colleague Sharon Achenstein, who's you know one of the best of the best as far as Milton studies, and you know I. I benefited a lot from her perspective. I shared it with uh, Urvashi Chakravarti, who has, you know, a lot of fascinating things to say about um, antinatalism and Milton. Um, you know, so so there's scholars that I'm 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 certainly like learning from or inspired by that that are that are picking up aspects of of, of this within within Milton. Yeah, I think that leads really well in, into my next question, which is like one of another thing that I admired in the book was how you quote generously from other critics. Um, you you share the stage um, with the scholars who have influenced you, inspired you. Uh, I cannot remember an academic monograph that I've read recently that was so appreciative of other critics, theorists and other scholarly voices and perspectives. It seems to me that you've thought a lot about what it means to be a part of a community of scholars. Um, how do you think through the ethics of citation? Well, I'm glad you picked that up. Um, thank you. I'm, I'm reluctant to talk about it a little bit because I think if I don't get it right, it sounds kind of gross or self-congratulatory. Um, I think especially around race and the ongoing critical turn in early modern studies that's happening, you know, so many scholarly conversations erupting, so many people putting in work to change our field. I think it's very important for white male cis scholars not to expect a cookie just because they cited people who weren't white or weren't male or weren't cis. Um, you know, the politics of citation at its worst can be like seamsterism or log rolling, right? It's that awful term virtue signaling. Um, 
virtue signaling is trying to put down what I think the ethics of citation is rightfully insisting upon, which is that we use scholarship to acknowledge pioneers, to acknowledge who got to a point first, but also to let new voices into the field so that it can grow, so that it can change. It's about credit where it's due. That's really important. Um, I think... When I think of like scholarly community, I have to say that like I kind of want it all. Like I want both ways. Like I want to have new thought that inspires me that might not necessarily be within early modern studies. You know, I learned a lot from reading um, a book by Hill Malatino about trans care, you know, which which alerted me to the the thought of Cameron Awkward Rich, who was the person that made this great uh situated trans person of color critique of of suicide prevention discourse so you know i learn about my own core topics by reading wildly in fields that might not be regarded as you know quote unquote my field i think that's what we need to do that said i also like to reach back you know to me i'm still in conversation with a cs lewis or a rosamond tuve or a rosalie coley right like some of the, the, the earlier generations of thinkers and writers in early modern studies still really resonate to me. Their interventions are powerful or their examples are, are, are still provocative to me. Um, Rosalie Coley is kind of a special case because I spend a long time thinking about her death and kind of processing what her death does or doesn't mean. You know, it really upsets me when I think of Rosalie Coley's death or, you know, Jenny Franchot or... Carolyn Heilbrunn, like so many brilliant women have, have killed themselves in academia and they were individuals and they made individual choices. But that pattern to me looks like what patriarchy can do, right? It can wear people down and it can exhaust people. Um, racism is the same. Um, so, you know, honoring Rosalie Coley's thought and trying to look at my own, I guess my own, my own frustration with her death, um, drove some of the, the, the final moves that the book is making. Um, how could someone so brilliant have, have, have decided to end her life over a man, over some guy, like some guy was worth not surviving, you know, but who am I to act like that's my call to make, you know, this is where I kind of have to, to see the, the limits of my argument. Um, because I do think Coley's death is tragic. I do think it was a terrible loss that shouldn't have happened. Um, you know, and I had to be honest about that. I felt like that was the balancing point, uh, that the book needed. Um, Yes, suicide can be funny and you can make jokes about suicide and literature does it all the time and we should be free to talk about it. But that doesn't mean it's always funny. And knowing, you know, knowing how to bring the argument to its close was also like knowing the point where I had to let it go. Um, I don't know. I'm still mad that Rosalie Coley's dead. It makes me mad. Sorry, I'm yeah. getting emotional. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm, I've also been really influenced by Rosalie Coley's work, and um, yeah, yeah, I would, 
I would recommend anyone out there uh, working in early modern studies or not to, to revisit revisit Coley's work. It's it's really amazing. Um, my, my final question is, I know this book is fresh off the press, but have you given thought to what your next project might be? Mm. <laughs> it's tricky. I mean, um, I'm one of these annoying people where when I was on the job market and then, you know, working on my melancholy book, they're like, what's your second book project? And I was like, suicide, you know, like I've always known that I would, would someday try to write this book. So the sort of what happens next is, is a really open question. Part of me wants very much to write something that I just wasn't able to fit into joy of the worm. Um, whether that's a book or an essay, I'm not sure, but I really, really want to think about, um, why Orinoco cuts off Imoinda's face in Afro Ben's Orinoco. I think the, the, the strange, incredibly disturbing, ugly violence of this image um, is something that the critical literature on Ben doesn't discuss very much. Everybody talks about the way Orinoco dies. Nobody really digs deeply into this odd, odd moment to my satisfaction. I know there's lots of you know, Ben criticism out there and a lot of great Ben criticism, but I have yet to see someone really explain why is this face cut off? So I want to write about that. Um, that might just need to be an essay. Um, I want to write a book about slavery and enslavement. And it grows in some ways out of the discussion of war slavery doctrine and joy of the worm, you know, which I take from Nyquist um, I think there's more, more to say about the way slavery circulates in intentionally inadequate ways as an erotic metaphor in early modern literature, in drama, in poetry, in romance. So I want to write something about what I'm calling the, the metaphorics of subjection, that is this sort of constant desire to call oneself a slave uh, because one is in love. You see it everywhere in Petrarchanism. Um, so, the, you know, I guess, yeah, the question is like, what is the force of a rampant, insultingly inadequate metaphorization of enslavement doing? And what does that tell us about metaphor? What does it tell us about literature? What does it tell us about like a sort of ethical failure of art? Um I don't know, you know, a white scholar wading into slavery studies needs to think very carefully about how are you positioning yourself? Are you reinventing the wheel? Are you compounding, you know, a kind of ghoulish and touristic relation to a archive of, of suffering? You know, those are real questions that I think I would have to resolve before I presumed to write such a book. But I want to. Um, I'm going to give a talk based on some of this, uh, an MLA in a, in a session about the sonnets and, and slavery. So that's one book I want to write. Um, I think I want to write a sound and music book, like a sound studies book. Um, I want to do a lot of things. I don't know. I might get hit by a bus in 20 minutes. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, I've lived 50 years and it's been a great ride and I don't want to make too many assumptions, but one thing I've noticed is, you know, I spent 12 years writing my first book and I spent eight years writing this book 
I'm not sure I can afford to take that long with every single book, you know? Um, so I need to find a way to move a little more swiftly. Um, that's my hope. <laughs> well, I can say, I mean, the time was well spent. It is, it is a wonderful book. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much, John. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm, I'm honored. Thanks.